But we are starting our part three of Church 1.0 um, today, which is all very exciting. And I want to start by sharing a pretty fun story with you about when I was working at Elam Christian College. Um, that's where Shemaine works, and, and a bunch of you guys are teachers there as well. Um, back in 2012, um, I wasn't a teacher, although I trained to be one, but couldn't get a job. That's how life happens sometimes. Was it me or was it, I don't know, let's be honest, they didn't want me. But I made my way into the system. I got a, a foot in the door as a sports coordinator at the school. And when I was there in 2012, I got the amazing opportunity to go with a bunch of year 12 students on the trip to Israel. Now, Elam Christian College do this every year with a bunch of year 12 students. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, I've been to a bunch of places in the world. This was by far the best trip I've ever been on. Like it blew my mind. Like it was actually incredible to go to the places that we went to. I remember going up the Mount of Olives, um, the place where Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount that we read about in Scripture. I remember going to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is there and he prays that prayer where he says, Lord, if this cup of suffering can be taken from me, let it be so, but your will be done, not mine. I remember hopping on a boat and sailing out onto the Sea of Galilee as we worshipped a Hillsong, which a little bit of a mixture, but it was amazing. We drove through this field that was the apparent site of the Battle of Armageddon when Jesus returns. Oh, the movie was playing in my head. I was like, front row seats, let's go. This is going to be mean. Um, I remember swimming or rather floating on the Dead Sea, which is nine times saltier than any, any other sea um, on earth. Like that was incredible and really salty. Um, Going to these historical sites was amazing because what it did is it allowed the stories of the Bible to come to life for me. They, they, they were just stories. A lot of these were just stories I'd read about them, read about the characters and the places and the events. But to stand there in the very place, man, my faith started to come alive. And I loved visiting these sites. But we also visited a bunch of different churches and cathedrals and temples beautifully constructed buildings that had been sitting there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, the most beautiful, ornate buildings. But as I walked through many of them, can I be honest, something about them just didn't feel right. We visited a, a church called the, what's it called? The, the church of, the Holy Church of the Sepulchre. I think that's how you pronounce it. And I've got a photo on the screen to show you. Um, this photo probably doesn't do it justice, but this church was built and particularly this thing in the middle sits on the site that is the supposed tomb of Jesus, where Jesus was born and where he was resurrected. And I mean, it looks amazing, but as I was walking through, um, there was these beautiful carvings, there was gold trim, shining panels, dim, like moody lighting. There was this really weird, creepy moaning music, like filling the air everywhere. And it just felt really eerie and really weird. And when I was in there, there was these security guards and this whole middle section was roped off and they were only letting one or two people in at a time, but there were hundreds of people waiting. And I remember standing there looking at this sort of thinking, what's going on? And I wanted to yell out, but I didn't, right? But I wanted to yell out like, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but Jesus isn't in there. Like this place was treated as so holy, so sacred, so significant. And I'm not saying that it isn't, but there was just something about it. I remember standing there thinking, Jesus isn't here. Not in, not in that building. Like, and I remember thinking, how did it all come to this? How was it all about stone and mortar and, and going to a specific site? I hate religion. I hate watching things on TV that are these supposed Christian ceremonies where you've got men of power in robes and everything looks like it's worth a billion dollars and they're waving incense sticks and they're mumbling in Latin. It's, it's not that I think all of these things are bad. It just doesn't seem to line up with the teachings of Jesus. It, it, I assume that the heart behind these things is good, 
But it just feels like layer upon layer upon layer of human ideas and traditions and ideologies layered on top. I mean, even when you walk through the streets of Israel and they say, this is the street that Jesus walked on, the actual street that Jesus walked on is like five meters underground. Because over centuries, they've continued to rebuild the city and rebuild the roads layer upon layer upon layer. I hate religion because what it does is it covers the truth and it clouds reality. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just peel back the layers of religion and just expose the simplicity and the beauty of the original gospel message? Wouldn't it be nice if we could actually just go back to what was intended, go back to what was the original gospel message at the time of the early church? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we read about the early church and the believers committing themselves to four main practices. They were sitting under the apostles' teaching. We spoke about, about that being like coming together for Sunday church, about fellowship. Darcy preached an amazing message last week on small groups. And then there was the breaking of bread and there was prayer. And there's something to be learned about the infant stage of the church, right? When it, when it hadn't been subjected to 2,000 years of man-made ideas and ideologies and traditions layered on top, there's something to learn about the beauty of the original. This morning, we're going to take a look at the third one of those, which was the breaking of bread. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Today, we're going to be taking a look at communion, all right, which may be a new word for some people, otherwise known as holy communion. Now, the Bible says that they, break, they broke bread in each other's homes. Now, this was almost certainly just talking about having a meal. Like probably nothing more, probably nothing less. It's probably all it was referring to. They broke bread in each other's homes. Um, but it would have been very customary in Middle Eastern cultures to have bread and wine at most meals. That's just what they did. And so the Middle Eastern people, what they would do is they would come together for a meal. They would have bread, they would have wine. But somewhere in that meal, they would intentionally stop and they would pause and they would reflect on what it was that God had done. They would reflect on what it was that Jesus had done on the cross to remember what he had done. And you might say, that's cool, but why? And that's a good question because while it might be seemingly obvious as to why we should remember, there's actually a really interesting backstory that leads up to this moment. There's a really interesting backstory that leads up to building this habit of remembering in the middle of mealtime. Remember that the early Christians, before they were known as Christians, were just Jews. They were Jews that were awaiting the coming Messiah. They had read the Old Testament scriptures. They knew he was coming. And so just like all the other Jews, they celebrated the Passover celebration. The Passover celebration or the Passover meal was an important uh, celebration among Jews and still is today because it's a celebration that looks back to celebrate the grace that God had for the Israelite people while they were in 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And so during this 400 years that the Israelite people are enslaved in Egypt, because of the evil and the wickedness of the people, God declares that what's going to happen is the firstborn in every household is going to be killed, right? Not evil, not nasty, not wicked, but justified. This is what the wickedness of the people deserved. But God speaks to the Israelites, His chosen people, and He says, what I want you to do is take a perfect, spotless, blameless lamb and, and take the blood of that lamb and smear it on the doorpost of your home. And God says, the angel of death is going to sweep through the land. And when he does, 
unfortunately, the firstborn of every household will die. But when the angel of death sees the blood over your doorpost, he will pass over. That's why it's called the Passover celebration. So the death and the condemnation and the judgment that you deserve for your wickedness, the angel of death would pass over it, that he would see the blood of the lamb as your protection. And that night, that's exactly what happened. And, and many people... Every, the firstborn of every household lost their life, but not those that had the blood of the lamb smeared over their doorposts. In this way, God extends his grace. In this way, God shows people to freedom. You see, the Passover celebration was about spring. It was about birth and rebirth. It was about that journey from slavery into freedom. And so there's this moment where Jesus instructs his disciples to go and prepare the Passover meal, right? Which as Jews, they would have been well accustomed to. They would have done this all the time, but they had no idea that this was the very last time that Jesus would eat the Passover meal with them. Jesus is wanting to use this picture of the Passover meal to help them remember what he was about to go and do himself on the cross. See, the Passover meal, what it did is it brought people together. It brought them together in the context of a meal, and it allowed them to stop and pause and remember the grace of God. And Jesus sees this imagery and he wants to dovetail on that symbolism. He knows that they understand this, so he wants to use that to establish something that would help them remember what it is that Jesus was about to do. So we read in Luke chapter 22 from verse 13 to 20. It says, They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. They were relaxing. They were chilling out. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink, it again, not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And this is it. He says, And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant, which means agreement, in my blood, which is poured out for you. So this is the last meal that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. And he's teaching that the bread represents his body and, and, and the wine represents his blood. And that he wants to use this imagery of the Passover celebration to link it to his own death, that he would become the Passover lamb. He explains that to them. And then he says, make sure that you remember me. He's saying, look, guys, there are some events that are going to take place. And, and I know that you don't fully understand them just yet, but when you have the bread and when you have the wine, think of me. When you have that, remember me because a time is coming and listen carefully to what I'm saying because you don't understand it now, but a time is coming when you will understand it. You see, the early Christians were Jews. They still met in, in homes and, and they still observed Old Testament feasts and celebrations and things like that. But what they also started to implement was this moment where they would stop and pause in the middle of a meal and use the bread and the wine to remember what it was that Jesus had done. As Christians, we don't participate in these Old Testament feasts and rituals. And the reason for that is because we believe they were, there was a purpose for them that was leading to Christ. And now that Christ has come, he has fulfilled those, right? Because Jesus became our Passover lamb. I know this is a whole lot of information. And I don't want to just come and say something inspiring. I actually want to give you information that's going to help build the foundation on which you stand. Because if we know this stuff and then we find ourselves wavering or, or feeling doubtful, we can lean on this. It's going to give us a strong foundation in our faith. I hope that's okay. So in the same way 
that when the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt and the angel of death came over in the same way that the blood of the lamb protected the Israelites from the judgment that they actually deserved and instead passed over in the same way the blood of Jesus protects us. It is our protection. It is our covering. And so when what we should be receiving is judgment and condemnation for our sin, instead of that, God passes over and extends grace to us instead. That's pretty exciting. So this is why Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. Maybe if you've been in church a while, you've sung old school songs. They're like, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's not talking about an animal. It's talking about Jesus who became that lamb. And this is the imagery that Jesus is using to help us remember. And so in the very essence, communion is about having an ordinary social moment together with other believers where we stop and we use the bread and the wine to remember what it is that he did on the cross, right? That he extended grace instead of shame and condemnation. That he paved a way of freedom for people that would otherwise be in bondage. That the faith we have would build expectation for what Jesus is yet to do in the future. See, the early church, they would gather together and they would have this moment where they would stop and remember. But by the time that the church got established in Corinth, about 50 years later, communion had taken on a life of its own. Man-made ideas had been piled on top and it was no longer what it was intended to be. It had become this big meal in church and problems started to arise. Uh, what happened is in the church, there were the rich and the poor, I guess like any church. And the, what would happen is the rich people were gathering together and they were eating a lot and they were drinking a lot and they were being merry by themselves while those with very little were left to struggle with not much. Not only that, but they were getting drunk off the wine that was provided for the communion. Nowadays, we've got the little cups of juice, so don't get any funny ideas. But they were getting drunk off the communion, right? And so Paul hears about this and he goes, you guys have lost the plot. Like this is never what it was meant to be. It was never meant to be this big traditional meal thing in church, but it was just the breaking of bread and the sharing of wine in a natural gathering of believers. And so he writes to them, but he's not happy. He writes this letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 to 22. He says, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you for it sounds as though more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. He says, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you are hungry and eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. I love how the next sentence starts. What? Question mark. What? This is Paul. What? Like, what are you thinking? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I will certainly not praise you for this. Look, there's no really clear directive in Scripture as to exactly how we should take communion, mainly because I think it's probably not the main thing. But Paul does paint a really vivid picture as to why. And he uses Scripture to unpack this for us. And we're just going to jump through a couple of reasons as to why communion is really important for you and I as believers. Is that okay? Uh, so the first one is this, as to why we take communion. Uh, number one is that we should look back. We should look back. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, he's, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It's always good to stop 
and do a bit of a stock take on our life, right? To look back and count the blessings that God has bestowed upon us, that God has blessed us with. Because what these moments do is they end up being pillars of faith in our life that prepare us in strength for what is yet to come. It's really interesting that when Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's really direct in wanting them to remember his death. Now, you and I, we would much rather remember somebody's life, probably not so much their death. When we have a loved one die, maybe we label the funeral as a celebration of life, which totally makes sense. I get that because we want to celebrate the significance of the life that someone has lived. But the truth is, not a whole lot was achieved in their death. But Jesus goes really articulate and really clear. He says, what I want you to understand is that my body will be broken and my blood will be shed. Now remember me. He says, remember me and remember the moment that I died. Because this is the truth, everyone. Like Jesus' life was amazing. It was incredible. It was inspirational. It's something that draws us in. It's an amazing example for us, but it's actually his death that bridges the gap between us and God. It's actually his death that is the significant moment. You know, the Bible teaches that there is life in, in the blood. And the blood of Jesus is the most precious thing that we have as humanity because it represents that brand new covenant where a way was finally made for you and I to be forgiven. See, without the sacrifice on the cross, there is simply no other way for us to be reconnected in relationship with God. If you take away the cross, there's no Christianity. If you take Christ out of Christian, you're only left with Ian and he can't save you. That's mildly funny. <laughs> there is something so valuable about taking communion as a moment to stop and reflect on what Jesus had done and reminding us that despite the fact that we face trials like when the All Black loses, God is still good. He's still in control and He's worthy to be celebrated. Yeah, we should look back, but the second thing we should do is we should look ahead. We should look ahead. In verse 26, it says, For whatever you eat, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's forward-looking. See, taking communion shouldn't just be about reflecting on what God has done, but also about being reminded that God is still working and there's still something worth celebrating. Like, you all know that I love a good cup of tea. Oh, I love a good cup of English breakfast. It is the glory of the Lord. And I tell you one of the beautiful, unexplained things, joys of life, is when you think you're done with your cuppa. Mm. And you think it's done and you think it's finished, but then you peek over and you notice that there's one more sip. Ooh, like you thought that it was finished, that that was the end of the story. But then you reach in and you have a look and you realize there's still something worth celebrating, that there's still more. Can I say to you that what has happened in your life is not the end of the story? It doesn't matter if you think that's it, it's done, it's finished, it is for the All Blacks, game over for them. But in your life, the truth is you have faced heartache, you faced challenge, you faced disappointment, you faced all of these things, but you've probably also faced joy and a level of accomplishment and satisfaction and love. And I need you to know today that Jesus died for us, not just because of what He did to set us free, but also because He has more for us in our today and in our tomorrow. God's promise was echoed by Arnold Schwarzenegger when he said, I'll be back, right? <laughs> Jesus is coming back. And while that's all very exciting and that's amazing and that gives us hope, that's not all there is to the story. Jesus actually died that there will be more for us in this life too. Come on, this life is not just the waiting room for heaven. Oh, I'll just, I'll just get through it. 
You know, I'll just wait until Jesus finally takes me home. Sure, like that's cool and that's hopeful, but there's a life to be lived now. And there's something that God wants to do in your life. There is more for you today and there's more for you tomorrow. And so when we take communion, it's a reminder that if what happened on the cross was really true, if that actually took place, then so are His promises for great things to come in our future. And it can build confidence and it can build faith for what Jesus is yet to do. When we take communion, we look back, but we also look ahead. Yeah? And the third thing we can do is we can look around. We can look around. The verse says, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. See, communion is as much about you and God as it is about you and other people. God could have included this illustration in Scripture, right? Jesus could have explained the bread and the wine to just one disciple. And as we read it, it would have had the same effect, but he didn't do that. He chose to reveal it in the social confines of a, of a meal. We're, we're believers, they're just gathered together. And he said, guys, 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 while we're here, while we're gathered, let me show you something. It's a reminder to not judge and criticize other people, but to offer help and assistance whenever we can. See, in Corinth, they had turned it into this big feast and people were getting drunk while others struggled with very little. And Paul challenges them and he says, guys, you've, you've missed the point. It's not just about appeasing your own desires, but it's about inclusivity and and inviting people in. You know, the word communion, um, as translated from the King James Version of the Bible from the original Greek, is the word koinonia. It's fun to say. Say koinonia. Koinonia, when translated, literally means partnership, participation, and fellowship. Like the best way to describe fellowship is a bunch of fellows in the same ship. Like we're all in this together. Christianity, it's not just about me and Jesus. Jesus didn't just die so you could go to heaven. Otherwise, why hasn't he already taken you? Because there's something about being together as a body. He died, yes, so that you'd be forgiven, yes, so that you'd be free, but also so that you could be included into one larger family, the body of Christ. You know, in the first early church, it said about them, it said all the believers were together and had everything in common. That sounds like a miracle. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. See, taking communion with other believers is a reminder that we actually need each other. That when we're in those scenarios, as Darcy shared last week, it's like iron sharpens iron, that we were made for community and that we inherit as, respon- as believers a responsibility to look out for the needs of others as we believe and trust that God's looking out for our needs. We look back, we look ahead, we look around, and fourth and finally, we look within. Verse 27 and 28 says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That sounds serious. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. You know, there aren't many instructions in the Bible as to exactly how we should take communion, but one of them is that we shouldn't take it in an unworthy manner. Now, please don't read this wrong. This is not saying that you need to get yourself worthy before you take communion, because we can't do that. That's impossible for us to achieve in our own strength. It is literally only by the grace of God that we can be saved and seen as righteous in the eyes of God. Like it's not because you come to church every Sunday, although that's important. It's not because you would say, I know more of the Bible than old Johnny sitting next to me. Like 
It's not about that. It's important that you read Scripture and your faith will come alive when you do. And you'll actually connect with the heart of God when you do. But it's not about that. It's not because you have a crucifix hanging from your review mirror. Arguably helpful, probably not. But it is solely and only and independently because of the grace of God that we can be see righteous in the eyes of God. But Scripture is very clear that we should examine our heart and come before God in a worthy manner. It's about being honest, being real, reflecting and asking God for forgiveness before we eat of the bread and drink of the wine, probably juice, if we're doing it in a church context. I mean, let's be honest, right? Like the whole point of this is to remember what Christ did. The whole point of this is to remember His grace. And if we hold back and we don't ask for forgiveness and we feel condemned and we feel guilty, we're remembering the grace of God, but we're also shunning it. We're remembering what was made available to us, but then we're also not receiving it. And in order to fully appreciate it and honor it and value it, we need to receive His grace into our life. You have to understand that God's grace truly is enough for you. The Bible says it's sufficient. Like there's enough left in the bottle for you to be satisfied. doesn't matter how far gone you think you are. God's grace is enough to meet you right where you are. In a moment, I'm going to share an example to help you understand that a little better. But God's grace is enough for you. Communion is about recognizing the lengths that God would go to to have a relationship with you. Keys, you can join me. That'd be awesome. In Matthew 26, um, we read the account of communion. And Jesus is there at the table with his disciples, known as the Last Supper. And he's using the bread and the wine to explain to them that a new agreement is about to be set in stone. A new agreement would be set where it was no longer a focus on our obedience, which is still important, but it's a shift in focus towards God's undeserved grace for us. It's a new agreement that does this. And it's really significant because in this very moment, As they're sitting at the table, an event takes place. This is the moment where Jesus says, hope you're enjoying the bread, hope you're enjoying the wine, just so you know, one of you are gonna betray me. Like this is heavy. This is big. That ruins a good meal. And everyone starts asking frantically, like, is it me? Is it me? Like, surely Jesus, no, like, we've been with you. I would never do that to you. Like, we're boys, I got your back. Like, is it me? Is it me? And Judas Iscariot gets his turn and he says, Lord, is it me? And Jesus says, yep. Jesus says, you have said it. It is you, Judas. You can imagine his heart sinking. You know, at that table, apart from Jesus, every single person is a sinner. But in this moment, One person is identified as the worst of the worst. The one that would literally betray Jesus and hand him over to be crucified. And the recording of this conversation is really interesting because they're having this dialogue about who would betray Jesus. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And and Jesus says, yeah, Judas, it's you. And then it seems like Jesus is just distracted or he wants to change the subject but then he does something that I've come to realize is actually just his response. It seems like he just starts talking about something else. Says Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. So they're having this conversation. Who is it? Who is it? Yeah, Judas, it's you. Where's the bread? Grabs the bread starts breaking it up, 
starts handing it out and he says, take this, this is my body, this is for you. And, and the wine represents my blood. It is poured out as a sacrifice to establish a new covenant for all people, even the worst of the worst. Jesus highlights that His grace and love can be remembered in the bread and the wine, but it's for all people. You and I might think, well, after that little episode, there's no way Judas is included. Like after all I've done, after the amount of mess ups I've made, like if anyone's got a bad, it's Judas. This is the guy that denies denies Jesus, he hands them in to be crucified. And in that moment, the immediate response of Jesus to that revelation right there is that God's grace is enough for all people. I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the greatest explanations of God's grace comes immediately after one of the strongest examples of rebellion and sin. The immediate response of Jesus to this deep God-defying sin is like, sure, that's gonna take place, but you have to understand that what I'm about to do on the cross is enough for all people. Communion in the early church was a family meal where they demonstrated their oneness and their unity. You know, this is one of the reasons that for as long as you've been coming to this campus, you'll notice uh, we've never done communion on a Sunday. And there's a really good reason for that. Some people, and we've rolled this out across our campuses, and at first some people are like, you know, what's the, this church is going down the drain? Like, you know, you don't even value communion. I wanna argue it's because we value it more. Because we could include it in the service and pass through it in three minutes and 25 seconds because it's all we've got time for in our service and just be done with it. Or we can actually push it out to the more biblical example of small groups. And so that's why over the next week or two, depending on when your small groups are happening, we're gonna be taking communion in small groups. It's because we value it so much that we wanna give time for it to breathe. It says that we shouldn't take it in an unworthy manner, but we should reflect and come to God and ask for forgiveness and be really thankful. I don't know if we can achieve that in the short time we've got together on a Sunday. And it seems to be more in keeping with the biblical example of they were just in homes having a meal together and somewhere in that they just stopped and paused and they used the bread and the wine to remember. We're also mindful that every single Sunday we have people in our Sunday service who don't know God, who would say, I'm not a believer. And that's perfect. We're so excited about that. Maybe that's you here today. This is as much your home as it is anybody's. And the reason we're here is because we're just gonna keep talking about Jesus and let you in your own time make a decision on what that means for you. And we're gonna encourage you, we're gonna pray for you, we're gonna believe with you, and we're just gonna keep sharing the truth about Jesus. So this is as much your home as it is anybody else's. But because we know every Sunday there are people in the room that are not believers, the Bible is clear that communion is for believers. So if we were to engage in that on a Sunday, we would at the same time be isolating and excluding some people from participating, and that's not who we are. So it's not that we don't care about it, it's that we care about it so much to give it the time and the space to breathe. And so that's why in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna be doing that in our small groups. If you're not in a small group, this is not like a shameless ad or a plug, but, but genuinely like you're not living in the fullness of what God wants to do in your life. Because it's in those moments that iron sharpens iron, that you encourage it, you challenge, and you can take communion together. But in a moment, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna pray for someone that maybe had an incorrect perspective on what God's grace was, maybe felt like, 
the level of your sin or how far you had gone was just slightly outside of the reach of God's grace. But the Bible is very clear that God's grace is enough for you. Come on, why don't we close our eyes? I'm gonna pray.